0: We are in the middle of our Lenten series called Real ID. And Real ID is about understanding our true identity in Christ. We're setting up kind of throughout this series the the lie that Satan tells us about ourselves or about God and then the truth that God makes true because of his son coming for us. So we're setting those, those up and we're looking at different ways that we can identify ourselves with Christ rather than the way the world wants us to identify ourselves. Last week we started with We're not discarded, we are redeemed. And I was able to tell kind of my sort of redemption story a little bit. And, um, so today we're going to continue with we are not orphaned, we are adopted. We're not orphaned, we're adopted. But I want to start by introducing you to some friends of ours. Uh, I met Tim Black in a Penn State dorm when I was a sophomore and he was a freshman. My roommate had the biggest stereo system in the dorm, and so we would always play loud music in the afternoons, especially in the evenings. And one night, he and I both enjoyed Rush. I know I'm old, but we enjoyed Rush a lot, and we were blasting a Rush cassette. Yes, a cassette, (laughs) for those of you who know what they are. But Tim lived in our hallway, down the hall and around the corner. He heard the stereo way down the hall, and he was also a Rush fan, and he came to introduce himself, and uh, we hit it off, him and I, from then, really from that point on. As we got to know each other a little bit, got to know that Tim is also a Christian, and we would attend Bible studies and social activities together with our Christian fellowship group, and our friendship grew over the years. And he became such a good friend that we named our son after him. So that's how much we think of Tim. Well, Tim was the best man at our wedding. So there you go. He's on the right, just in case you can't tell which one's which. (laughs) We both have more hair here now and a little more other stuff down here now. But uh, Tim was the best man at our wedding. And how many of you were ever a best man at a wedding? Just go. I'm not going to ask you to do anything. Just raise your hand. Okay. I don't care how good your toast was. You're going for second place. Tim had the greatest best man's toast in history. You're just you're fighting for second place, I'm telling you. His toast was amazing. It was a six stanza limerick. He was an English major. So it was full of humor, personal touches and love and it was great. We still uh, fondly remember that day over 23 years ago and a lot of the reason is because of his great toast. Well, eventually Tim met and married Kelly a wonderful woman that we just adore, and they moved to Florida for Tim to serve as a pastor. He eventually went on to seminary and served as a as a, ch- a pastor at a church there. Tim really didn't have a chance because his dad is a pastor. Both of his uncles were pastors, or one of his uncles was a pastor, and both of his grandfathers were pastors. So he really didn't have, a, have much of a chance there. And the other thing is, when they lived in Florida for a number of years, they actually, it was a problem for me because I broke the 10th commandment against envy because they had season passes to Walt Disney World for a number of years. So, I mean, they would go to Disney World for dinner. Like, let's just go for dinner. Let's just go watch the fireworks tonight. And uh, so that was, that was rough. But anyway, now they're back in Pennsylvania. They just moved back there a couple of years ago. Well, Tim and Kelly had two boys. They are now 12 and 10, but this is a picture when they were younger. Micah and Liam, but they felt like their family wasn't complete. Kelly had felt called to adopt a child since she was in her teens. And after their second son turned two years old, Tim started to feel that call as well. As they began researching the process, they narrowed their search down to special needs children from China. Unfortunately, in many parts of the world, children who are put up for adoption have sometimes been taken from their homes and trafficked because the traffickers know Westerners will pay a lot to adopt a child. But China has protections in place to prevent that from being nearly as common, especially among children with special needs. So Tim and Kim felt strongly and they had confidence that the child they would eventually adopt had not been trafficked for profit. That's part of the reason they decided to to adopt from China. But through a long and complicated process, they adopted a beautiful two-year-old girl from China named Vivian. Vivian has spina bifida, and very few adoptive families are willing to take children with that disease because of the potential mobility and incontinence issues. But because Tim and Kelly were willing, they moved to the top of that list pretty quickly. And they got news fairly quickly that a child had been found for them. Vivian, or Vivi as they call her, was orphaned for reasons that no one knows, though the challenge of her care was likely a factor. If you don't know anything about spina bifida, I've learned a lot about it. But with spina bifida, you're born with an obvious bump on your back. So you know from the very start that there are going to be challenges for that child. So, was that the reason? We don't know. And they will probably never know. But she was found abandoned on a street corner. When she was found, she weighed five pounds, and they estimated her to be about three weeks old. Tim and Kelly got Vivi on her second birthday, or what they estimate to be her second birthday. They don't know for sure, but they estimated, and it happened to work out that Tim and Kelly got her that day. A few years later, they felt called to adopt again and they were willing to adopt another child from China with spina bifida. So they found Titus. Now Titus is, there's less known about Titus, especially his background, except that he was in the care of a medical facility from birth. Whenever he was found, whatever circumstances he was found, he didn't go to an orphanage first like Vivian, like Vivian did. He went straight to a medical uh, facility because his issues were so, so uh, prevalent and, and challenging. So Tim and Kelly eventually found Titus, and they brought him home when he was almost four years old. So this is about a year before they met him. So this is when he was about three. Now, because of their unique issues, Vivi and Titus both spent more time in medical facilities than in orphanages. There are just simply things that Tim and Kelly might never know about these two children. For example, Titus has a very prominent scar on his lower abdomen, they have no idea why doctors here can't figure out what surgery or something he might have had that would have caused that scar. It's just something they just won't know. In her blog, Kelly writes kind of a, kind of a heartbreaking but beautiful um, story about there are just things that, that Vivi now asks, questions she asks now. You know, Mom, what was I like when I was born? Where did I get my artistic, you know, my love for art? You know, I don't know. I don't know if you got it from your mom, your dad. You know, I don't, I don't know. And it's kind of hard for them to sometimes be able to have to be able to say, I don't know. Because no one, maybe no one knows. We'll come back to Titus and Vivi and the, the black family in just a little bit. But I want to move into what adoption, where we see adoption in the Bible. The word adoption actually does not even occur in the Old Testament, although there are certainly uh, stories that allude to it. Most notably, you might think of Moses. Being adopted again, that's not the word that's used, but you know, Moses' mother put him in the, the basket and waterproofed it and put him in the river, and then he was adopted. Esther was adopted and she was taken in, and so both Moses and Esther and others were raised by people that were not their biological parents. And in other places, God refers to Israel as his firstborn, they, he says, You are my firstborn son. And God tells David that David that God has become David's father. So again, there is examples of it in the Old Testament, but not the actual word. Well, by New Testament times, the Roman law gave formal structure and definition to what adoption should be. And the concept is widely understood enough that Paul was able to use that word and talk about it in many different cultures. He wrote to Ephesus, he wrote to Galatia, he wrote to Rome and mentioned adoption in all three of those letters. So it had become a pretty prominent thing. The literal translation of the word adoption, so like our from Greek to English in the New Testament, is to place as a son. To place as a son. So what I want to do is I want to look back at each of the uses of the word adoption in the New Testament. There's five. And they kind of skip around a little bit. We're going to skip around by theme, not not chronologically. So you'll see that it's a little bit out of order chronologically. But I want to do it by theme. So let's look at all five instances of the word adoption to see what adoption really is all about when it comes to our understanding of adoption that God does for us. So first, Romans chapter 9, verse 4. It says, The people of Israel have an adoption to sonship. There is the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Paul is simply reminding the Israelite people that they were adopted by God long ago, and because of that, they had a special position among all people in the world. God loves everybody, but Israel, you had a special position because of his choosing of you, his adoption of you. You have the covenants. You've received the law. You have the temple worship. You have the promises that other people don't have. The second use that I want to look at is Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5. It says, He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will. Again, you're chosen. And then a similar theme, Galatians 4, 5. God sent his son to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. So both the Ephesians and the Galatians verses refer to the fact that now believers become children of God because he chose them. It's not anything we've done. It's not anything we've earned. It's not anything that that we can say that's going to make that happen. God chose us purposely to be a part of his family and to take us in to his family. Two more uses. Romans chapter 8, back to Romans now, 8:15. The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, "Abba, Father." This is a beautiful picture of what adoption means. Think about what God does when he saves us. He could have made us become his slaves. That's something he could have done when he saved us. He could have essentially said, you know what? You have two choices. You can turn away from me and spend eternity in perpetual punishment and agony, or you can turn to me and be my slave. Which would you prefer? You'd be a slave, yeah, you would be a slave, but it would still be much better than, than the alternative. God could have said that and he would have been absolutely justified if that's what he had chosen to do for us in our salvation. I think even I would say yes to that. Yeah, I'd rather be your slave God for eternity than to spend eternity in punishment. But instead of saying, I'll save you into slavery, God said, I'll save you into my family. You have a seat at my table. You know, a slave doesn't have a seat at the table. A slave serves the table and the slave gets, you know, a, a lesser table with much lesser food and all those things. He says, no, your, your seat's at my table with me. In fact, he says, let's not even be that formal about it. You can call me Abba. You know what Abba means? What was that? Daddy. It's the Aramaic word for daddy. It's, The most intimate, personal form of father. You can call me daddy. You can can sit right here next to me at my table. You can have the things that I have. You don't need to be a slave. You can sit at my table. And then further down in Romans 8, verse 23... Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we, await, as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Like so many other of the benefits of salvation, adoption has a component that won't be fully realized until the end of this life. We have been adopted this is essentially what he's saying, we have been adopted, we are being adopted, and we will be adopted. We're waiting for that we will be part. So as we look at those themes in Scripture, we think about what adoption means for us even today, let's look at some, some themes, some consequences of adoption, legal and spiritual. We already mentioned the first outcome, the first consequence when we get go from being orphans to being adopted, and that is intimacy. We have intimacy. Vivian Titus don't call Tim and Kelly Mr. and Mrs. Black or Pastor Tim and and Miss Kelly or anything like that. They call them mom and dad because they are mom and dad. We can call God the Father Abba because He loves us with that kind of intimacy and grants us what comes along with that. So the first outcome or consequence of adoption is intimacy with God the Father, with our daddy. Second is the legal understanding of adoption. The legal standing that we have. Remember I said that Roman law was the basis for adoption back in the first century when Paul wrote these scriptures. Roman law, not Jewish law, not Greek law. And it's because there really was no similar arrangement in Jewish law. The Jewish law said that if a man died without a son, then his closest male relative was commanded to sleep with the widow to produce a male heir. Had to be biological. Had to be a biological son. But Roman law allowed for a man to create a male heir from outside the family. In fact, in Roman law, adoption was more for the parents than for the child. It was to preserve the family, because in Roman culture, Roman tradition, a family was the worshiping unit. And in that day, the worshiping unit needed a male to lead the prayers and sacrifices to the family gods, whichever gods they were. were, There could have been many. That's not correct. But what is correct is that they, they were a worshiping unit. So worshiping families, worshiping units were the building blocks of Roman culture. So you could create a family by going outside of your family to bring someone in. And it preserved the family, the family structure. And in Roman adoption, the adoptee got a new identity. When God adopts us, we get a new identity. We're part of the worshiping unit, the worshiping unit, the family of God, in every sense of the word. So the first consequence is we get intimacy with God. The second is we have legal standing with God. The third is that we have an inheritance. Of course, you know that in modern law, we receive an inheritance when someone passes away. But Paul's so Paul's metaphor kind of breaks down here because you know that would say that well the God has to die for me to receive my inheritance. Well, that's not true. Actually, once again, God's word comes through with an amazing metaphor that if we understand the culture in that day, it illustrates it so well and talks about what he thinks about us. In Roman law, in that in those days in first century, in Roman law, all members of the family held equal control of the property. All children of any age were already heirs while the father was still alive. You didn't have to wait for your father's death to have control of the property. You shared control. So those of us who have accepted Christ's offer of salvation and the father's adoption that comes with it, we are co-owners of the glorious riches he has to offer. So, the consequences of adoption are we have intimacy, we have legal standing, and we have an inheritance. And we don't have to wait for the inheritance. So, as we think about orphanage or being an orphan versus being adopted, you know, without Tim and Kelly or some other adoptive parents who would have been willing to take in children with very unique needs, the outlook for Vivian and Titus would have been very bleak. Titus uses a wheelchair to get around, and as I talked to Kelly this week to get all the details of the story that I had maybe had forgotten or didn't know, she said, here's the thing about China, is it's, it's not very wheelchair-friendly. It just, it just isn't yet, for whatever reason. Children with disabilities are often ostracized. There's no telling what might have happened to Vivian and Titus, but most of the possibilities are not something that we want to think about. So if not for Tim and Kelly or some other adoptive parents, granting them intimacy and legal standing and inheritance, we don't know what would have happened to Vivian Titus. If nothing else, children in China, this is just the way the law is written, children in China who are in orphanages age out at 14 years old. If no one has adopted them, they're on their own. I mean, can you imagine not gaining a ton of life skills anyway because you're living in an orphanage and you don't learn a lot of the life skills that you need to survive, and then at 14, you're on your own? As a side note, Kelly did ask me to make note of this. China has recently stopped all adoptions due to the coronavirus. They've they've stopped travel for that purpose, understandably so. But right now, Kelly knows someone who is trying to adopt a child who is currently 13 years old, and their birthday is coming up. And there's no grace given. If the child turns 14, they've been told, if you're not here, the child's on their own even if the parents are, have their bags packed, their tickets in hand and are ready to go and just waiting for the, 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 the travel restrictions to be, to be lifted, even if all of that is true, they've said, we stick by the rules. So if you think of it, pray for that this week. That this child and other children would not be kicked out essentially on their own because of travel restrictions. Tim and Kelly's kids today, just a a recent family picture. Micah is 12, Liam is 10, Vivi is 8, and Titus is 6. And Kelly said that Vivi was with four different foster families in her two years in China. And one very distinct memory that Kelly has is how Vivi, from the very beginning, received love very openly from their first meeting. This is the first time they met. This is right after they had met her, heading back to the hotel. She would accept hugs. She would sit on their laps. She would miss them when they were gone. But it took a year, Kelly said, almost exactly to the day for her to return love. She'd receive it, but she wouldn't return it. Kelly said she knows exactly when it happened, and she called Tim at work, and she said, she hugged me. Even at her young age, she had developed a defense mechanism because people who love you will eventually give you up. Is what she believed. To quote Kelly, she said, The love is there. The love is there. The love is there. But sometimes we're not ready to give it back. And wow, what a metaphor of our understanding of our relationship with God. The love is there. The love is there. The love is there. But sometimes we're not ready to give it back. Sometimes it takes us a year, 10 years, 40 years, whatever it took you. But he never gave up. Tim and Kelly never gave up. They didn't stop hugging her, or holding her, or giving up their laps for her. Or any, They didn't do that. They didn't give up. The love was always there. And eventually she returned it. God's love is always there. And he just hopes that eventually we return it. I asked Kelly what their family has learned about God's adoption of us during their journey. She said, and I'm paraphrasing here, but she said, they have a better understanding of no matter what we bring with us, God loves us. God makes us a part of his family regardless of what we've done. She said children like them are just kicked out of families or kept out of families simply because of something over which they have no control But no matter what ability, disability, background, screw-ups you have, God has a place at His table for you. And I know none of us come from a perfect family. Some of us come from a family that is far away from perfect. But no matter what you think or what we think about our earthly family, no matter how much or how little they demonstrated their love to you, no matter how they set the course of your life by their influence, no matter all that stuff, we need to know that our future is so much brighter because of the identity that we take on when we accept Christ. We are not orphans. We are adopted. It is so important for us to understand our identity in Christ because the world and Satan love to lie to us and make us feel unworthy and rejected and discarded and orphaned. And all kinds of outcomes result from that wrong thinking. When we start to believe that about ourselves, we believe the lies and then we, we spend time spiraling into anxiety and depression, and suicidal thoughts and self-mutilation and substance abuse and so on. But when we believe the truths that God tells us We understand that we have been transformed, renewed, and redeemed. We understand what it means to be adopted into our Father's eternal family. We have intimacy, we have legal standing, and we have an inheritance. So I want to do a little exercise for us to help us understand the difference between the truths and the lies and how to find them in Scripture. Hopefully when you came in today, you picked up a copy of Ephesians 1 and 2 on a handout and a pen. And also, if you didn't get one, if I forget to mention, if you didn't get one, we also have these bookmarks that list a whole bunch of scriptures about who we are in Christ. I want to encourage you to take one, take two, take whatever, however many you want. We'll get as many as we need to. Just to remind yourself about your identity in Christ. But what I want to do is just go through this Ephesians 1 and 2 for a little bit of time today to kind of demonstrate just a Bible study technique to you and how you can understand God's God's love for you and His identity that He gives you. So what we're going to do is you're going to take your, your pen or whatever you have to write with and you're just going to kind of mark off four different themes that we see in Ephesians 1 and 2. If you were here for the prayer gathering the other night, we had a chance to start on this. And so we'll just pick up there as well. But what I want you to do is look through, and you're going to see four different themes that I want us to identify. First of all, you're going to see several times where it talks about God's will. Here's God's will. And you're going to choose a way to mark that. You're going to underline that or circle it or square it, whatever, star it, whatever that, you know, I'm going to have four separate marks you're going to use. So, for example, in the very first line on, in Ephesians 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, there it is, will of God, mark that. And you're going to see that throughout those two chapters. A second kind of mark you're going to make, and I'll just give you a hint, it's all going to be in chapter 2, but a second kind of mark you're going to make is going to be about our past condition. Turn over your sheet and look at chapter 2. Just as, as an example. The first line, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Mark that somehow. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. Mark it differently than you marked... God's will. And then give yourself a little key so you know what the marks are somewhere. The third thing you're going to mark is all the places where it talks about praise. The theme of praise is throughout Ephesians 1 and 2. Again, back to chapter 1 on the on the front side. The third line, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Mark praise be to... To, that, to the God, of, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ with a different mark. And then finally, and maybe most importantly, especially in this series, we're going to go through Ephesians 1 and 2 and we're going to mark our identity in Christ because of what He's done. I found about 25 or 30, I, didn't, I don't remember the count exactly, but in these two chapters, I found about 25 or 30 different things that are true about us in our identity in Christ. For example, again in the first line, in the first chapter, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus. Right there, we are holy. Mark holy. And you'll find those throughout both sides and both chapters. Especially the things about our identity. So I just want to kind of just show you kind of what mine looks like. I mean, I know it's hard to see, but I mean, you know, it's just it's just completely marked up, for the, four, the different themes that we're looking at. And yours will look different because you'll find ones that I missed or whatever. But I want to encourage you, work on a little bit here. I'm going to give you some time here with some music playing. Work on just a little bit here for a few moments. Maybe go through and just start with... God's with the praise thing, and then go back through again and do the the old self, and then go through however you want to do it, whatever method you want to use. But then I want to encourage you, take it home. Mark it up with colors, because then it really jumps out. Doing an exercise like this in Scripture will give you a visual image of what God has done for you, what He believes about you, and what He wants to do for you. And it's also just a great way to internalize scripture because you're reading it through three, four, five times. And you really get the theme because every time you're looking for the, a different, different theme. So David's going to play some music and we're just going to take a few moments to work on that and then I'll come back up in just a few minutes.